Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's Chief Medical Officer and host of the Spotlight On series from WebMD's Health Discovered podcast. For this special two-part episode, you'll hear up-close and personal journeys about being diagnosed with a rare type of cancer, multiple myeloma. He looked at me. I have been his patient for more than 20 years. And he said, this is really strange. You're an African-American, age 57. I've never seen this before. This back pain that you're continually having with no signs of osteoporosis. No signs, exactly. And I didn't have any signs of osteoporosis in my family history. Listen to Health Discovered on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. What is going on, Belly Up Sports fam? Mr. Shaka Cummings, my partner in crime, Mr. Parker Ainsworth. Welcome to F in Sports, the podcast with two teachers, great sports, biggest issues, Mr. Ainsworth. Are you thawing out on this fine Sunday afternoon, sir? <laughs> it is legitimately snowing here in Dallas. Um, I mean, I, I know you're a New Yorker. Legitimately having inches of snow on the ground and covering parking lots and cars and everything. It's its wild to see outside. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I have 121 reasons to be doing well, and I think you only have 99. So, <laughs> for, for folks who don't know, the New York Knicks played the Houston Rockets last night, and the New York Knicks came out victorious. Final score, Knicks 121, Rockets 99. Um, I don't even feel like we played the Rockets, so I felt like we played the G League affiliate. There was like two players that I recognized. <laughs> it's, it's like only four of the starters are hurt, two are playing hurt. 
And while his like minutes restrictions really kind of getting getting to me a little bit because I was anticipating him having a minutes restriction while playing with Victor Oladipo and while playing with Christian Wood, but his minutes restriction hurts a lot more when those two guys aren't in the lineup. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't. I guess they're trying to save him to make sure that he doesn't get re-injured, kind of like Kawhi. But with Kawhi, the Toronto Raptors were great. Like they need Wall. They absolutely need Wall. They're not going right. to make the playoffs without him. Um, maybe that's a podcast for another time because uh, <laughs> the Knicks are in the playoffs right now. And by the way, let's get Julius Randle in the All Star game starting. Um, oh, I, I would second that even as a Rockets fan. Hey, shout out Julius go. Randle in every sense of the word. No, absolutely. And you're BBN now. Um, check out our Twitter feed, guys. <laughs> uh, let's go ahead and jump into our history lesson for the day, Mister Ainsworth. Who would you like to talk about for Black History Month? Well, so I'm going to talk about a historic figure named Jack Johnson and not the more recent musician. I'm going to look back at the boxer Jack Johnson from the early 1900s. Jack Johnson is a famous black boxer, uh, famous for also being the first black boxer that was the world heavyweight champ, and that he knocked out white boxers as well. I think that that was a shock to a lot of people at the time based on the fairly racial, we'll just say articles, because I I don't think they were very much news as much as opinion pieces, but that were written about him at the time. He knocked out so many white people that eventually they started searching for a, quote, great white hope type of boxer to fight against him. That's that's absolutely where that term comes from. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which is wild, right? And he fought in what's called the fight of the century in 1910. You can go look that kind of stuff up if you're a fights fan. I'm not a particularly big fights fan, but as a history teacher, I think it's important to point out that like, that was amidst the Jim Crow era, closer to Reconstruction than people may realize. He was also, in a lot of ways, kind of the first marketed athlete. Uh, if you look across at the advertisements in the South, trying to advertise to a black audience, he was the face of it because he had very literally knocked out white people, right? And so it was like, oh, if he'll use our bank, we can now advertise you should all be using our bank or those kinds of things, right? And so, well, he didn't quite have the success of someone like the Jumpman, he did have a lot of marketing and advertisement type deals across the South before he eventually gained too much notoriety and was uh, seeing a few white women and that's had to flee the country quickly because of some laws in the South at the time, right? Talking about Jim Crow era. And <laughs> anyway, he does eventually come back to the States. He uh, serves a little bit of prison time for those things because it's pre-Lovey, Virginia court case obviously and anyway he he ends up living the rest of his days in the united states after a short prison stint but again shout out for a historic boxer in jack johnson my history lesson mr ainsworth and this is an athlete that i think comes up fairly regularly during black history month but it's willie o'ree and willie o'ree integrated hockey the reason why i wanted to bring him up on this podcast is because unless you are watching a kind of all-in documentary on Willie O'Ree, I think that a lot of the interesting parts of the story end up being left out. Unlike Major League Baseball, when you think about Jackie Robinson, there wasn't this grand plan to integrate the NHL with Willie O'Ree. Willie O'Ree could just play. And because he was so good, he was drafted and signed. And then he was working his way through the minor leagues. The Boston Bruins had an injury in 1958, and they called up their best left winger to come and fill in, and that was Willie O'Ree. And so in 1958, he integrates the NHL. There's not this huge fanfare 
the way that there was with Jackie Robinson. And it speaks to a lot of different pieces. Oh, by the way, he's called up with the Boston Bruins. He plays two games, and then he's sent back to the minors. Um, he doesn't have any meaningful stats from those two games, by the way. So he's literally called up to be on the bench to fill in. Uh, but the, the pieces are just so interesting because, again, there wasn't this grand fanfare. There wasn't this grand plan to bring him in. He ends up making the Boston Bruins roster in uh, 1960, and he plays another 43 games in the NHL. But then Willie O'Ree never plays again in the NHL. So his NHL career is 45 games. He talks about the fact that, you know, it wasn't that there were no racists in Canada where he's from or that there wasn't racism in Canada where hockey is obviously such an incredible uh, deal, the national sport. But in America is where he experienced the overwhelming majority of the racist comments as he was playing. And so for him, you know, he came up, he played. Going through the minors and things in Canada, he didn't experience the level of racism that he did experience here in the United States when he played for the Boston Bruins and when his minor league teams would venture into the U.S. He ends up playing for uh, a Los Angeles team and a San Diego team as well as he uh, wraps up his career. That being said, he is a living example of what racism looked like in Canada versus the United States in terms of athletics. And oh, by the way, the NHL only puts him in the Hall of Fame in 2018. So it's not right. like... There was this huge recognition of Willie O'Ree and historic accomplishment until much later. So it's, the whole thing to me is just so interesting. Well, and I, I was only going to add that his stories from his life do shed a lot of light on a lot of the, we'll just say negative stereotypes about Boston being the northernmost southern city or Boston versus Philadelphia for competing for that quote unquote title, right? Like the, the idea that Boston hosted this guy, right, is another piece of his puzzle. And then I, I like what you said about the fact that it wasn't this orchestrated deal where you have Jackie Robinson in baseball or in basketball. They brought in Chuck Cooper, Earl Lloyd. I think it's Nat. His nickname is Sweetwater Clifton all at the same time, right? Um, and like there was like a, an effort, a concerted effort. They picked him up as a team and organization because he was good and just kind of dealt with the repercussions as they came. No, absolutely. It's interesting because folks will point out that sports is a true meritocracy. But when you look at the history of sport, it was never a true meritocracy, right? Blacks were intentionally kept out of American professional sports. It's the NHL, this league that is a North American sport where Willie O'Ree is able to come in and there's not really that much fanfare because of uh, racial relations in Canada versus the United States in the 1950s. And it's just so interesting to me. Hopefully this podcast is interesting to you all. Uh, friends, we're going to talk <laughs> We're going to talk national anthem. We're going to talk Todd Bowles and is he the next Bill Belichick? And then we're going to talk about the greatest living American athlete, Tom Brady. Or is he the greatest living American athlete? Or is he maybe the greatest athlete ever? We'll, we'll have all those conversations. Without further ado, <laughs> Mr. Ainsworth, are you ready to go, sir? Ready when you are, Shaka. Okay, Mr. Ainsworth, as history teachers, we're used to diving into controversy, so let's just dive headfirst into the national anthem. <laughs> uh, Mark Cuban made the news this week, so of course we have a thesis statement about your favorite owner. Uh, <laughs> Mark Cuban has set precedent that every sports owner should follow by ceasing to play the national anthem before games. Mr. Ainsworth, I say that to you. How are you going to grade that thesis statement? I'm going to give that a... B plus. I mostly agree with a lot of the things Cuban's saying. There's one, maybe call it a negative take, a hot take, or whatever you want to say that I have a that would actually pull it down to a B plus. But I'm interested to hear what do you think, Mr. Cummings? So I'm actually a little higher. Like I'm an A plus, the rare A plus. I think that Mark Cuban <laughs> you never is spot get on. It, yeah. <laughs> 
okay, Mr. Ainsworth. Normally, you're the easy A guy, but this one, you went B+, plus and I went A+. Plus. So, talking about the National Anthem, talking about Mark Cuban, talking about the NBA, but really broadening this, the thesis statement. Mark Cuban has set precedent that every sports owner should follow by ceasing to play the National Anthem before games. Talk to me, Mr. Ainsworth. Why'd you go B+. Plus? Well, so I'll only briefly touch on like the positive reasons, because obviously if it were like 50-50, it'd be in the C range, right? And I think that there are a lot of pros to this, and I'm sure you'll go on about them because you gave it an A+. plus. Um, but moreover, it, why are we tying, especially to sports like basketball that have teams from not the United States or hockey or baseball, why are we tying these you know, sports games to the national anthem. It's the same kind of thing that's like, I question, you know, people probably come to Twitter and tear me shreds for it. Like the Pledge of Allegiance <laughs> School. Like, why, do, why do we do the Pledge of Allegiance School for so long? And I guess my, my big thing there is like, that makes me feel like Cuban is mostly right on this, right? That uh, as much as it pains me to say it, uh, although he is great <laughs> on Shark Tank, and I do wish all owners were fans in the same way he is, even if he's a weirdo. I, I will say that I think that <laughs> Mostly, I agree with the idea that the anthem is a weird thing to play before tipping off a basketball game or kicking off a football game. Like, guys are getting psyched up and amped up to go play. Like, why are we calming down to, you know, be reverent to the country right fast? And my primary reason that I gave it a B plus and not an A plus, though, Shaka, is what the anthem's become in the last four or five years, right? Is that I want to say it a couple people first, but the most biggest and obvious answered this to be like when Kaepernick started kneeling, initially sitting and then asked to kneel by Nate Boyer. When Kaepernick started kneeling, the anthem became a moment for players to express their social unrest with what's happening in the country, right? Whether it's kneeling or holding up the fist or whatever it may be, um, or turning their back all the uh, to the direction of the flat, whatever they want to do to it, right? And this didn't start with Kaepernick, right? We could go back to... Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, uh from the 90s, right? And he refused to stand for the anthem and face the flag uh, as a black Muslim and what the United States was doing in the 90s in the Middle East. If you remove the anthem entirely, now that only removing it now that it's become a hot button topic as a place of protest, what is that really saying about what you're taking away, right? Like, are you taking it away because now it's a place where people are expressing themselves because you didn't no one wanted to take it away in 2015 before Kaepernick was kneeling before it right I guess that's my only reason I'm not giving it an A plus is because it feels like this is a way to kind of skirt the controversy Ooh, these guys are protesting because we don't like something about America let's just take the moment they're protesting away and then we won't have to look at it and that feels awkward and not sufficient um, and, and I feel like it's not great to when people find a way to amplify their voice in front of people with national television cameras take that opportunity away i i obviously gave this an a plus so i'm going to be more on the side of taking it away but let me say i'm an a plus here with the mindset of if you don't want to take away the anthem you don't have to but i guess my thing has always been number one i've don't remember the moment that we decided that players have to be standing out for the anthem, like in all sports. Like, I don't remember that moment. But whoever made that decision messed up. Like, you, <laughs> why, why, why do the players have to be a part of this particular moment? So let's start there. Now, when I ask that question, why do owners have to play the anthem? What if there's an owner who doesn't want to? Like, I put billions of dollars into buying this thing, and you're telling me I have to play this anthem. Maybe I don't want to. 
give the owner the freedom to say, I'll play it if I want. Maybe some days we play it, maybe some days we don't. Maybe it's something special that we only do on Sunday games or something to that. I don't know. Like, But give them the opportunity to maybe have some semblance of control, right? When I look at the controversy that's evolved around the national anthem, right, I find that there's, there's so much irony in the situation that's come up this week around Mark Cuban. So for friends who maybe aren't aware, during this time where we come back from COVID and we're having this uh, basketball season, apparently the Dallas Mavericks have not been playing the national anthem at home games. And nobody noticed until someone in the media asked Mark Cuban about playing the anthem before games. And then Mark Cuban spoke out and said, yeah, we just made the decision. We're not doing it because, you know, the NBA talked about whether or not we should because there's no fans in the stands. And so there was a lot of pieces. So we never really got a resolution on that from the league. So we just haven't played it. It's so much a parallel to Colin Kaepernick. What folks forget is that if you go back to Kaepernick's original protest, Kaepernick was sitting for like at least a couple of preseason games during the anthem and nobody noticed. Sitting on his butt. Yeah, he was sitting there watching. Absolutely. And then Steve Weiss, who works for the NFL Network, asked him about it. And it was only then that we found out that Kaepernick did this in protest. If no one had asked Kaepernick, no one would have known. I don't know that people noticed that Dallas wasn't playing the anthem until a reporter asked the question, which is I, just so weird to me. I got the impression, based on the way the reporter asked the question, I can't find the exact wording, and I got the impression the assumption was just because there were no fans there to do it, right? It was like cutting out a lot of the pregame rigmarole because there was no one there to do it for. And then Cuban opens it up to be other things, right? But I think that most media members kind of assumed as much beforehand. Well, and here's the thing. I don't know that Cuban opens it up to other things initially. Like he says, basically what you said, like the league didn't actually give us clarity as to whether or not we need to play the anthem. All things considered, there's no fans in the stands. Um, and then, right, he he went into conversations that he's had with players and conversations they've had around the league. And so you have those pieces to consider with the parallel between Kaepernick and this Cuban situation. Um, you mentioned Mahmoud abdul Rauf formerly Chris Jackson, played at LSU. The the Sports Illustrated cover of Everybody's All-American with him like draped in a flag is nuts. When you consider that uh, he converts to Islam and then is this controversial figure in the 90s because of his stance around the national anthem, right? And so the league actually did not have rules in place saying that players had to stand for the anthem until Mahmoud abdul Rauf. Which, again, right. felt like a great opportunity to say, why are the players out here for the anthem anyway? Like, let's 25 just, years ago. Yeah. You, we could have solved this problem so long ago. Just put the players in the locker room. If you want to be out there, you can be. Just like if you're owner who wants to play the anthem, you can. The, it's funny because like I do think in hindsight people look back at the NBA and say, man, you guys actually hedged some things off with the Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf situation that the NFL could have hedged off because you required your players to stand during the anthem, like you put it in your bylaws. And I just, I look at that and say, man, you could have really hedged it off by saying no one has to be out here for this thing. We'll play it. If the fans want to stand, they can. There's so many right. pieces that are just interesting how we've tied the anthem to sport in a way that I'm not sure it's healthy. And and where's the slippery slope go with this? Like, do you remember going to baseball games, Mr. Ainsworth, when you were a kid? I'm, and when I'm talking about being a kid, I'm talking about being like eight, nine years old. Maybe you guys went to Astro games or you went to, you know, University of Texas baseball games, these sorts of things. The reason why I ask this question is because it's only post-September 11th 
that the seventh inning stretch has become this time where we sing God Bless America. Because when I used to go to games as a kid, we sang Take Me right. Out to the Ball Game, right? Um, right. Yeah. And, and it made a lot of sense to do that. But now, like, that's a moment. So where, where do we stop with the moments? Like, is there going to be other things that come along at halftime? Like, I, I don't know. And what I don't want this to come across is some, I'm some sort of unpatriotic uh, jerk. I'm really not necessarily that. I just want to ask these questions. And then when I start to ask these questions, I'm like, why are we telling people that they have to do the anthem at any time? Or should we be telling people that they have to do the anthem like in a lot more moments, like the Stan Van Gundy take, which is why don't we do it before church? Why don't people do it before they go to their jobs? Like, I, I don't know. Right. Well, I think the Van Gundy take is particularly interesting because you don't see them play the anthem before the market opens up in New York, right? You're a New Yorker. You, that never happened. <laughs> no, um, that did not happen. <laughs> I, but that's, you know, a lot of people's form of employment and we aren't playing it before they start their job. And I think that it's it's fascinating to think that, you know, when did this really start? Again, you alluded to the fact that I was 10 years old when 9-11 happened, so memories of sports before that would have to be, like, very specific, and I, I don't know that I would have had a whole lot of grasp on, like, what was happening at games outside of reading back on those kinds of things. I will say, though, that, like, this is just another instance to me of activism happening during the anthem happening a lot in the last five or six years when it really started 25 years ago, or people, you know, being critical and asking for more social activism out of athletes or less of it. And that was a discussion that seemed to happen back with Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, right? Like the, these things aren't necessarily new. It just seems like for whatever reason, even leading up to Kaepernick eventually taking a seat and then taking a knee, it feels like the idea of the anthem and this pro-America and the you know flyovers and all of that stuff has been continually ramped up in the last few years. I know that in the NFL, right, this is a basketball-specific thesis in a lot of ways because we're talking about Cuban, but in spreading out to other sports, they did strike a, for lack of, you know, it's a marketing deal with the military. And for whatever reason, the anthem strikes a military chord with a lot of people. And so that's part of it too, I'm sure. Um, I don't know if the NBA has those same ties. They certainly don't have the same marketing contract. That's Absolutely. It. You use the term activism. And so doesn't it feel like there's a sense of activism on the other side, like pro-anthem activism by forcing the anthem to have to be played? And is there an irony that <laughs> you know, that level of activism comes from the original activism of a Mahmoud Abdul-Rawuf or of a Colin Kaepernick? You know, something else that you mentioned, Mr. Ainsworth, it struck a chord with me. You talked about Colin Kaepernick and the evolution from sitting to kneeling, right? You may not remember this because it seems like it was such a small footnote, but I remember when Marshawn Lynch didn't stand for the anthem mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. And people asked him about why he doesn't stand. He just didn't, he wouldn't answer. He, just wouldn't, he didn't talk to you. And he was sitting. He wasn't kneeling. He was right. sitting during the anthem. And I don't know that we ever heard from Marshawn Lynch exactly what that entailed for him. But if Colin Kaepernick had been Marshawn Lynch... Like, I don't know that we would have any talk about the national anthem, right? Like, if, if Colin Kaepernick would have just been like, whatever, I'm not answering the question, I don't, whatever. Like, I don't know that Steve Weiss even has a story to talk about on that preseason game. I believe it was 49ers versus Raiders, if my memory serves correctly. But I don't know that he even has a story. Like, it, it might not even be anything he brought up during the broadcast, right? He might not have a story and Cap might have a job. Who knows? Um, Maybe he'd be playing for the Jets and we wouldn't suck every year. <laughs> Okay, Parker, so the thesis statement for this commercial is James Harden has the best beard in sports. 
What do you think about that thesis statement? Oh, I give it an A. You know, as a Houston guy, we we seem to have an affinity for our beers between guys like him, Dallas Keiko, lots of big dudes in the Houston area. What do you think about the thesis? So I'm a Jets fan, and I absolutely love the beard that Ryan Fitzpatrick has. So maybe I would give Ryan Fitzpatrick the nod over James Harden. But you're talking to a couple of bearded teachers, and we know a thing or two about making sure that you maintain that mane. So check out the beard struggle. The beard struggle, they make oils, they make balms, they even have this heated comb to make sure that you get your beard straight so that you're looking fresh. I know I've really enjoyed using the oil they make for my quarantine beard of sorts. It's nice and long these days, but it helps <laughs> keep it nice and healthy and hydrated. And if you're a listener to our show, you can use FN Sports 15 and get 15% off your oils, your balms, your shampoos, conditioners, whatever you need to use to keep your beard looking healthy. Absolutely. Check out The Beard Struggle at thebeardstruggle.com. Whether you're just starting to grow or you have a luscious mane already, The Beard Struggle's got all the products that you need. The Beard Struggle. Feast your face. Okay, Mr. Cummings. So our second thesis ties to last week's Super Bowl. Uh, Not maybe where folks might think it ties, but it ties right to the (laughs) Super Bowl because it's involving some Super Bowl winning, we'll just say coaches for now. The thesis reads, Todd Bowles is set up to be the next Bill Belichick. You hear that and you think? I think I'm going to go B. I want the right like I want to reserve the right for this to go way higher too though. (laughs) But I'm going to go B right now. How do you think about this one, Mr. Aintor? It's interesting. I'm also thinking the B, B-plus range. All right, Mr. Cummings. Now, when you texted me this thesis earlier this week, you know, a little show behind the curtain, uh, Mr. Cummings and I texted each other theses throughout the week to see what we're going to do. Um, I was like, huh, that's interesting. And as the week went on, I got up to a B on it, or a B-plus, I should say. You seem to have come to come the other direction down to a B um, after talking to you the other day. So I want to hear, <laughs> what are your thoughts? So part of it is, first of all, defining the next Bill Belichick. Like if he's set up to be the next Bill Belichick, what that means is that he's set up to be like literally the most successful NFL head coach we've ever seen. And along with that, one of the most successful NFL personnel people that we've ever seen. And that feels like a lot to live up to, right? Because Bill Belichick, <laughs> Bill yeah. Belichick, could have two separate Hall of Fame careers as a coach and as a player personnel guy. And so it feels like, man, yeah, Todd Bowles. Okay, there's a lot of parallels here. Next, Bill Belichick, absolutely. And then you start thinking about what that means and what that would entail in terms of the amount of pressure that you put on someone. And I'm like, well, let's walk it back a little bit. But let's talk about those parallels because the parallels are what make this thing interesting, right? Bill Belichick starts his NFL coaching career as an assistant, has a lot of success as an assistant coach, then jumps into a head coaching gig with the Cleveland Browns, where he has a tremendous amount of success, but not enough success to keep his first head coaching gig. So then he works his way backward, and he's a defensive coordinator uh, with the Patriots as well as with the Jets. He does this, by the way, under Bill Parcells, both times. Right because he's a defensive coordinator with the Giants. And then after he leaves the Browns, goes back with Bill Parcells with New England and with the Jets. Then he jumps into this uh, New England job and he's Bill friggin' Belichick, right? Like he has the level of success that is unprecedented as a coach, as well as as a GM personnel guy. Todd Bowles 
defensive coordinator has an incredible amount of success as said defensive coordinator gets that head coaching job now. The Jets have a certain amount of success with Todd Bowles. Really should have made a playoff. Uh, there's a year in there where, man, I'm a Jets fan, and so I remember Fitzpatrick really staking it up the last game of the season. So we ended up not making the playoffs. But um, had a level of success. Then we, we end, it falls apart. He's now the defensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Oh, by the way, his defensive coordinator success is with the same head coach both times. Right? Both times. He's with Bruce Arians. He's with Bruce Arians in Arizona. Then gets the Jets job. Now is with Bruce Arians in Tampa Bay. Able to win a Super Bowl as a defensive coordinator there. So now, is he set up in a very similar way to maybe go get a head coaching job and maybe mirror Bill Belichick's success as a head coach? I, I think it's an interesting comparison and one I hadn't really thought about, if I'm being honest, until you said that the other day when you texted me this thesis. And I think that the interesting thing to me is is that, honestly, Belichick gets started a little younger, but also, not that Bowles had an extensive playing career, but Bowles did bounce around a little bit as a, you know undrafted free agent here, contract expires there, so like he, he got a little bit later start to his coaching. I think the interesting thing will be is that the assumption there is that Bowles would become a head coach like at probably in the next cycle if, if it was going to follow like a, like that similar of a trajectory. And... You know, the 2000 New England Patriots, Belichick's first year, go 5-11. and 11. And then the next year, they go 11-5. and five. It's a very quick turnaround, right? Does Bowles have that quick a turnaround? And if not, I don't think he gets the time, wherever that may be, to turn into that. That doesn't mean he couldn't. That doesn't mean he can't or whatever. But for whatever reason, we see coaches on shorter and shorter leases in 2020 than we saw them in 2000. And let's not say for whatever reason with Todd Bowles, because we know exactly what the reason would be that he would get a short leash because right. black head coaches don't get the same leash as white head coaches. And well, and then what I was going to go with that actually is that they traditionally don't, don't get hired for a second time, right? Which is the other aspect of this too, that the white privilege comes being a white head coach in the NFL is you get a second chance. Bowles isn't white. And traditionally that hasn't been afforded to black head coaches. The The other thing I was going to say is if he went 5-11 his first year and couldn't go 11-5 and five and make the playoffs and win the Super Bowl in his second year, like Belichick did, there'd be a lot of people that, because he's black or whatever, would tie it back to, well, he wasn't good with the Jets either. He's just not a good head coach. Get rid of him. Boom, bye. And that's assuming <laughs> he got the second chance that most black head coaches don't get. And so I, I guess that's why I'm sitting at a B because at a B plus as opposed to an A plus is because I think there is potential there. I think there is a chance that it all happens. It's just not the same kind of high chance that you'd give a white head coach in the late 90s, early 2000s, right? No, absolutely. And the pieces that bring it down to a B for me, because all those parallels, they're uncanny. Like X-Men uncanny. Um, but uh, <laughs> when you start thinking about the pieces that are unique to Belichick, the quarterback piece, that's what matters. Like Bowles in New York, the quarterback was always a struggle. Now, if he goes to a new situation and the quarterback piece works, he's going to have enough time to potentially show us what he is as a head coach. But that's what really worked out with Bill Belichick, right? The quarterback piece, the Drew Bledsoe to Tom Brady piece is what allows Bill Belichick to become Bill Belichick and to become the dude that we now know. So Todd Bowles would have to make that piece work very early in his tenure. The other piece is the 
player personnel piece that I mentioned before. And I don't know if that's an avenue that Todd Bowles would want to explore. I don't know if all head coaches like secretly just really want to be GMs. Like, I don't know if that's really the case, but Bill <laughs> Belichick again has had a separate hall of fame career as a player personnel guy. The moves that he has made in terms of influencing who new England drafts. And when we let those guys go, like, yeah, we'll let Richard Seymour have one more good year, but what we're not going to do is lock him in. So we have to deal with the three bad years, right? Like right. the fact that Bill Belichick really had that foresight in New England on a consistent basis and consistently with different groups of folks kept that team winning is incredible. Now we see that, you know, maybe he let Tom Brady go and Tom Brady gets the Super Bowl. But it's not to say Tom Brady doesn't fall off the cliff in the next two years. And Bill Belichick is right again. Like, OK, we let Brady go. And we get that we let him get that Super Bowl, but maybe the next two years, we don't know what Brady's going to be, right? So there's nothing to say that he's still not right on this deal, um, except that Super Bowl ring, man, uh, New England was really bad this year. But all that being said, his his player personnel decisions have been so incredible throughout his career. Like, can Todd Bowles mirror that? I don't know that he can mirror that. And if he doesn't mirror that, then he's not the next Bill Belichick, right? Bill Belichick, you have to take the totality into account. Bill Belichick may very well be the best non-player, like, in NFL history. Um, and, of course, this is arguable, right, because someone invented football and someone invented the NFL, right? Right. So it's all arguable, but just understanding that— And the forward that, pass. And, yeah, yeah right. absolutely. But just understanding <laughs> that Bill Belichick has had a tremendous impact off the field, man. Like, uh, I, that's a lot of pressure to put on bowls. I think you brought up a good point, the quarterback piece, though, because so much of a head coach's success is based on the success of that quarterback. I have Belichick's resume pulled up here on Pro Football Reference as a coach. He's won, as a Patriots head coach, less than 10 games three times. In all three of those times, he did not have Tom Brady as a quarterback, right? <laughs> and so, you know, that's an important parallel. I don't think, I'm not a person that thinks it's all Belichick or all Brady. I think that they obviously grow together in a way that's very important. And I think that you need somebody that can do the job, right? And I think Bulls needing that guy, you know, Fitzpatrick may be, you know, four different NFC or AFC East teams, but I think time it's all said and done, and he has a long career as a backup and Fitz Magic and so on. He's a lot of fun. And you kind of want him on your fantasy team whenever he's about to start or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But he's not the guy, right? He wasn't going to be the guy that Bulls hung his hat on in New York. No, he was going to be the Drew Bledsoe and Sam Darnold was supposed to be the Tom Brady, right? That right. was the idea. That was the idea. And then it didn't pan out. And so now they're <laughs> looking to go move. Frankly, they got rid of Bulls and now they're looking to get rid of Darnold, right? They're going to draft the Fields guy. They're going to draft the Wilson guy. They're going to move on and go get uh, Deshaun They got Walker. rid of Bulls and then got Adam Gase. Like, let's not leave that. Oh my God, I'm going to have a headache. Why are we talking about the Jets during this podcast so much? They're awful. Um, Mr. Ainsworth, can I, uh, not to interrupt too much, but I wanted to interject the point because this is something we talked about off pod. Like, maybe this should be a separate thesis statement. I don't know. But we, we talked about uh, Byron Leftwich and maybe looking at him as well. And the parallel that I drew to uh, Byron Leftwich, like, if we're looking for that comp for a certain level of success, like, Byron Leftwich almost looks like with his offensive ingenuity set to be the next Sean McVay. So if I say that to you, I'm just curious how you feel about that sentiment. I think the other interesting thing there is much like, not as much like because his career was more successful than Bowles as well, but Byron Leftwich compared to McVay compares similarly to Bowles and Belichick to me because Leftwich is successful very early in his coaching career. He's just not as young as McVay because he was the best player of any of the four guys we talked about, right? Uh, like, frankly, he was a 
longtime starter in Jacksonville, and you know you can talk what say what you want about Jacksonville while he was there, but I would argue is a successful pro quarterback, and the fact that he lasted for what is this ten years? And Jacksonville um, wasn't really ever awful with him. I mean, he got injured right. at the end, right? Um, and I think he's fighting. You know, I mean, it, it's no secret he's a black OC fighting the same fight that Bowles is fighting as a DC. I that think that Eric it's worth the enemy noting. is fighting as an OC as well. Right. On the other sideline of the Super Bowl. I, I think that the interesting thing to me, I mean, we could dissect the Super Bowl on that as well, if you want, that <laughs> no one, they didn't give Bowles credit. They talk about how bad the enemy was, but that that's not here or there. The, the thing I will say <laughs> is that I, you know, and people that listen to me know, I talk a lot about Bobani Jones as a guy I follow on these kinds of things as the guy with all the white privileges in the room trying to understand other other viewpoints. Bomani quickly points out that for the majority of Byron Leftwich's career in Jacksonville, because the climate of Jacksonville and the climate of the NFL at the time and the climate of people playing quarterback, they had an entirely black quarterback room because the moment he slipped, if they didn't, people would be calling for the backup. Like That's just the way that that works, right? And so if you look at Leftwich and that situation is past, he understands moving into the OC and into the coaching world, that as well as anyone. He understands that whether it's, you know, Arians, obviously we talked about in, I guess, two pods ago for a Super Bowl preview, how Arians has a good staff and a has benefited from not limiting his staff to the traditional, well, I need the traditional white guy to do this. And he does. I mean, he's got women on staff, he's got black people on staff, he's got immigrants on staff, he has, he has all these different people helping him out. And I think that Leftwich is going to understand that as well as anyone would. I also think that there's something about young OCs. People think they want these innovative types. And while he's not as young as McVeigh, he's certainly only not as young as far as his career goes because he also had a playing career. I mean, he's, he's he is as early into his coaching career as McVeigh would have been. Listen, he's as young as Dan Campbell and whoever they hired in Philly and all these crazy folks getting these gigs. Right. So, like, he is young enough to be the young hot shot. You said so many things that uh, just triggered memories for me, right? Triggered. I'm sorry. Um, triggered. No, no, no. Um, no, not, they're not actually all good memories. But um, uh, the first thing that you talked about was that all-black uh, quarterback room in Jacksonville, and I forgot that, yeah, David Garrard was the backup for right. Byron Leftwich, right? And so uh, you didn't have the racial dynamic piece there because regardless, you were going to have a black starting quarterback, which is an interesting take. Um, the other thing that you mentioned was Byron Leftwich. And so, of course, that reminds me that he went to Marshall. And then it takes me to Chad Pennington, the best Jeff <laughs> quarterback I ever saw in my lifetime, right? And the fact that he was also a Marshall guy. But, of course, the Jets let him go, and then he wins a comeback play of the year with Miami and we got Brett Favre and we didn't make the playoffs because Favre's shoulder let out and it all circles back to the fact that the Jets suck. <laughs> okay, Mr. Ainsworth, final thesis statement for this podcast comes directly from Jamel Hill. You sent me this tweet. <laughs> the first sentence of the tweet, Tom Brady is not the greatest athlete of all time. Hey, let's just use that as a thesis statement. Mr. Ainsworth, <laughs> I say to you, Tom Brady is not the greatest athlete of all time. How are you going to grade that thesis statement, sir? Sitting at about an A or an A minus on that. If he's if it, if the word's not, uh, what do you think, Mr. Cummings? Yeah, I guess I'm. I was going to say A minus as well. I want to leave some wiggle room for seven rings, but I'm feeling like no, he's not. Okay, Mr. Ainsworth, Tom Brady. I might think he's the greatest living American because he's made so many of my takes right. That being said, <laughs> uh, that's not the question here. The question is about him being. 
the greatest athlete of all time. Where we're going to disagree if we disagree at all is I have a real problem handing it to have it, as a guy that played a lot of football, a football player. And I don't mean that to say that football requires less athleticism than anything else. It frankly is a sport that if you are a good athlete, we can find a spot on the field for you. You're darn uh, right we will. <laughs> <laughs> because there are so many different body types and types of athleticism that play into football. Uh, it's just, it is a team game. And as a team game, there are so many aspects that go into being successful. And Brady's biggest thing is being successful. And so I don't want to slight him in his seven Super Bowls or, you know, imply that he doesn't have anything to do with the locker rooms that create seven Super Bowls. Shoot, last thesis, I just talked about how because he's the quarterback for all of Belichick's seasons in which he had over 10 wins, which is like 19 of them, right? Like you could certainly argue that he is a big, big part of it. I just look at a football team and I look at Tom Brady as well and any quarterback and say, you know, you're on the field half the game <laughs> or, or whatever the whatever percentage for that particular game may be, I guess. But you're only involved in half or if you have a special needs coordinator, it might not even be half of, of what's going on out there. And I think that the interesting thing is in looking at Brady is there's also an argument to be made that some of the best football he played was not also in seasons they won Super Bowls, right? And I don't know if that actually helps this his side of this argument or hurts his side of this argument, but like the Randy Moss year with all the stat breakers and so on, they lost in the Super Bowl, right? And oh, yeah, they did. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know you know that. Um, whereas the early part of his career, right, he threw one touchdown pass in like his first two and a half Super Bowls. Like, like it was some, it's something crazy where it's like, he had a great defense and great run game, and he's a great leader, and he does everything right. And frankly, his most like striking talent in watching him play is he doesn't make mistakes very often, right? And I just don't think I'm ever going to be ready to hand the title of like best athlete ever, whether we're going to talk about American sports, team sports, whatever, over to a guy that doesn't make mistakes. Now, if you want to talk about best quarterback ever, we can talk about it. If you want to talk about best football player ever, Odds are that'd be a quarterback, a middle linebacker, maybe a running back. Like that's, that's going to narrow it down to a handful of positions that have a disproportionate impact on the game. But I just don't think I'm gonna, ever going to be close to handing it off to a quarterback. I I guess that that's fair. I will say that like there's no argument he's the greatest quarterback. So like when you said that's arguable or what you're talking, no, we can't talk about that. He's the greatest. Now the the pieces with Brady that because we we have the same grade, so it's not that I disagree with you wholly. But some of the sentiments I actually do disagree with. Brady had incredible seasons in years that he won the Super Bowl as well. Now, now we can look at statistically some of the years and, you know, the the 50 touchdown year he threw for 4,800 yards. That's incredible, right? And they don't win the Super Bowl that year. And I get, I get that. And the year he throws for 5,000 yards is another year that they lose in the Super Bowl, right? They lose to Eli Manning and the Giants that year. Uh, that being said, he has plenty of years where he throws for 4,800 yards, 4,700 yards, throws 28 touchdowns, throws 33 touchdowns, 36 touchdowns, and they win the Super Bowl, including this year where he throws for 4,600 yards and 40 touchdowns, right? So I, I, I just I wanted to pick at that point a little bit because I had a bone of contention there. But in, in general, we agree. It's hard for me to look at a quarterback and say the best athlete of all time. I can look at a football player and maybe say that, like, I would be willing to discuss Bo Jackson, for instance, and the argument there is 
like pure athleticism, the fact that right. he could be a pro ball football player and an all-star baseball player. No one has ever done that. Deion Sanders played both sports, uh, didn't do that though, right? So there's maybe that argument. But the other piece is that there's so many great athletes in terms of both accomplishment and a semblance of athleticism that a quarterback just doesn't exhibit, right? The obvious one being Michael Jordan, but you could go into basketball and you could start talking about LeBron James or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as well, right? There's the obvious argument in terms of tennis, right? And and Jamel Hill eloquently talks about this in her tweet. So I, it's not like I'm pulling these out of thin air. I want to give credit to Jamel. She says, Michael Jordan, Simone Biles, Serena Williams, Muhammad Ali, Wayne Gretzky, LeBron James, Michael Phelps, Usain Bolt. She mentions all of these folks. And if you start looking at the achievements as well as just the raw athleticism of these folks, Man, does Brady just pale in comparison? Like, if you start talking about athlete in particular, when you use that term, like, does Brady even pale to football players, right? Because you could say he's the greatest football player, but is he the greatest athlete playing football? Like, that term athlete maybe throws a monkey wrench into this discussion as well. Now, Mr. Ainsworth, if you were going to look at some of these other athletes and compare them to Brady, and say that they're better. Start talking to me about some of the folks who you think are definitively better than Brady. Well, I think that if we're going to talk football player and athlete, you know, Bo Jackson is an interesting case to look at, and you brought him up too, because you're looking at Bo Jackson in terms of, like, how high his peak was, not how long his tenure was, right? Because he was a dual-sport pro athlete, and I'm not sure which one you'd... Because, like you said, he was a all-pro in both, or an all-star in both, or whatever. Um, no, he was a better football player. I mean, that hip thing Right, is but crazy. I, I guess what I'm saying is, like, as a just football player, like, if he were not also playing baseball and showing off, like, running, like, literally running up the wall and things like that, like, we got to see his <laughs> athleticism play out differently than we get to see other football players, and so he, he gets some nod there. We also could go back to Jim Thorpe, I and mean, we'll go back 100 years, we're going to do this thing with football players <laughs> and being multi-sport athletes. Uh, I think that it's fascinating to look at football players because you're going to settle on guys that don't play quarterback because for so much of football, the quarterback is, his job is distributing and coaching and this and that and those kinds of things. And the athleticism of a guy like Pat Mahomes that can do all those things and be an athlete is relatively new or very, very old, depending on how you want to look at football, right? Like you go back <laughs> Incidentally, to... Have you seen the video of Patrick Mahomes shaking some dude on the court, like crossing him over ankles? I mean, I, he's obviously yeah. a great athlete. <laughs> Tremendous athlete. Um, but it, uh, what I'm getting at, though, is like that's a either really recent phenomenon, if you want to look at like the pro quarterback and how they've gotten more and more athletic in the last 15 to 20 years, or it can go back to before they were throwing the ball forward and go how athletic they were then. I mean, you can go both ends of the spectrum on that and look at football. But again, I, I look at football as a 22-person, if not more, sport, and it even if the quarterback disproportionately throws that off and for a long time it was the running back and you could talk about middle linebackers like Dick Buckus or, or whatever, I have trouble going to hand that off to a guy that plays football. I think if you're looking at team sport guys, it lends itself to basketball much more because it is a team sport that one person can still completely control in a way that, you know, if you're the quarterback, you're out there watching your defense give up points. You can't do much about that. And and I think basketball offers a chance for a single person to dominate a team sport in a much different way. And so I look at basketball. I look at Jordan. I look at Wilt. I look at Bill Russell. I look currently at LeBron James the last 20 years, right? Like I, I go to a very different place with hoops. If you asked me, Mr. Ainsworth, about individuals and their impact that they could have, like disproportionate on a game, right? 
Like, I think about quarterback and disproportionate impact that they can have on a football game. I think about a goalie in hockey and the disproportionate impact. I think about a pitcher in baseball. And you're right. They don't play the other side, right? Like, a goalie is all defense, and they're never never scoring a goal, right? A pitcher, for the most part, is not going to be the reason why offensively you're winning the game. It's going to be because they're shutting the other team down. And Brady can't go out there and play safety. Right, I mean, maybe he could in high school, but he's not doing that. <laughs> I would, I'm a starting ha- quarterback. Actually, does that for us at Sayer. So, uh, but <laughs> I will say though, having seen Brady's uh, the the famous draft photo, I'd love to see that Brady try and play safety. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, he can he can start for us. Um, we we got no one coming back in our defensive secondary. That being said, right, like the quarterback can have such a disproportionate impact. But you're right. Like a basketball player has to play both sides. Like you have to score and play defense. It's one of the things that we love about Michael Jordan: the fact that he was, he was all, all defense. Led the league in steals, defensive player of the year, and oh, by the way, killer double nickel in the garden. This always comes back to New York sports being bad, but this is (laughs) who Michael Jordan was, right? LeBron James as well. Like LeBron James elevates in terms of defense. The, the, The play that I most think about with LeBron James as a Cleveland Cavalier is the rundown block on Andre Iguodala. It's not any of the points that he scored, which is crazy, right? Um, and so basketball, you do have a disproportionate impact in that you have to play both ways. And if you're an incredible player, you can have that impact on both sides. LeBron has to be a part of this argument. Like, I I don't want this to be a Michael Jordan exclusive argument. LeBron is chasing down Michael Jordan. (laughs) And so when we start talking about greatest athlete ever, LeBron needs to be in there in terms of the basketball side of it as well, in my opinion. I think the thing on LeBron is it felt silly when he had like two rings to be like, well, he has to get to six. Now he's sitting at four. They're the Vegas favorites to win a fifth, and it's like he really could get like he doesn't look like he's slowing down. He, he also really has done this with three different teams, three franchises, different roles with each franchise. And frankly, if you look at the change in his game, I, I don't I don't mean to like sound holier than that. He plays such a different style from his first stint in Cleveland to Miami to his second stint in Cleveland to now at the Lakers, where he's attacking and winning and successful, playing a very different role and position with varying levels of athleticism. I mean, I can pull up clips. The my, One of my favorite clips about LeBron James is a catch he makes that does not turn into points where a Cavalier throws a lob to him in like 08, and it's a it's like above the backboard lob, and he skies up to get it, and he's so out of control when he catches it that he can't put it down as a dunk. He like gets double teamed when he hits the ground, and so he passes it for a kick out or whatever. But when he if you pause the frame midair, the legitimate like nipple line of his chest is even with the rim. Like I've never seen a guy <laughs> jump out of my life. It, it like because he wanted to make sure the ball didn't go out of bounds, and he's so out of control in the area. Obviously, he can't flush it down, or else that breaking backboard type of dunk would have been all over everything. But it's one of the fa- like just like YouTube search. LeBron James jumps really high, catches lob or something like that. Like it, it comes up a lot. Don't I YouTube think- search LeBron James nipple line. You'll get something totally different. Because <laughs> um, that's, that's, that's not the best search right there. Um, Mr. Ainsworth, there's something that I want to interject because we mentioned some other great athletes. I'm curious. Jamel Hill does not mention Tiger Woods, right? And when we yeah. think about best athlete, I don't know that we intuitively go to a sport like NASCAR, where Richard Petty has the most NASCAR championships as well as the most wins, right? We don't think about Dale Earnhardt or Jimmy Johnson, who also have the most championships in NASCAR. Like, could someone in a sport that we don't always intuitively think about 
as you need overwhelming athleticism to be successful, could they have an argument that they are, in fact, greater athletes than Tom Brady in your mind? Well, I think the interesting thing there becomes their arguments to me are a lot like Tom Brady's, right? It's about doing what you're supposed to do very, very well and having long-term success at the highest level, right? So you could look at Earnhardt, whose life was cut short, and frankly, if, if you're looking for some more on that story, is it's Daytona Weekend. Uh, there's a great ESPN Daily podcast. Uh, pa- Pablo Torres does a great job with that, but like it, it's like tear-jerky, kind of sad when they talk about what happens to Dale Earnhardt at the end. Um, but you do look at like NASCAR as their job is to drive fast, turn left. It's more complicated than that, right? But that's like, just like a quarterback job is to throw touchdowns, just like a golfer's job is to put the ball in the hole. And if you do that at the highest level very well for a long period of time, are you relatable? The thing that I go to to with Tom Brady is he's in a team sport. His success is that much more impressive, you could argue. There's a lot more chance involved because he can only control what he can control. Whereas like Tiger being good means Tiger wins and there's no other factors. I would argue that there's also this aspect of it that's like, sometimes Tom Brady wins, even though he threw three interceptions like they did against Green Bay, right? And so like, you can do those kind of things too with it. And I think that that is just the comparison of team sports to individual sports, don't you? I guess I agree. I will say there's more of a team element to NASCAR with the whole pit crew. Like the driver drives the car. I'm, I'm, I've raced a car or two I, in my day, right? The NASCAR, in NASCAR, the driver drives a car, but the team puts the car together. That, But you're right in terms of maybe looking at Tiger as an individual or even Muhammad Ali as an individual in terms of boxing, right? So there's there's this different element. There's so much complexity that when you just start throwing that out, greatest athlete of all time, right? There's just so much complexity to it. I almost intuitively want to go to the Olympics and, and think about, you know, Jesse Owens or Michael Phelps or these types of folks, right? Just because of the raw athleticism, Usain Bolt, right? Um, and so, yeah, the complexity to the team sport versus individual sport argument is interesting. The 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 success versus raw athleticism are it's it's very difficult. I everyone's gonna have a different answer as to greatest athlete of all time, I would imagine. Mr. Ainsworth, I'm happy that we even have you on the podcast today after the drubbing that the Knicks put on the Rockets. Wanted to make sure I brought that back. <laughs> uh, but uh, talk about midweek mid-range. I know that this was the opening uh, week for the uh, YouTube stream. Talk to me a little bit about the episode and how it's going and what we have to look forward to in the future. Yeah, so uh, for those new to the show or they're checking it out, on Wednesday nights we'll be doing a live show. You can find it on our social media handles at midweek midrange. The show is called the midweek mid-range and we're looking at all basketball all the time we intentionally schedule for about nine o'clock eastern that way we're halfway through if not closer to the end of the first nationally televised game every wednesday which somewhat ironically this wednesday should be a complete drubbing of the rockets by the philadelphia 76ers i don't know that game got put on national tv i guess before people got swapped around but every week we'll be looking at basketball with a handful of different games and we don't look at it as theses as much as like hot takes cold takes because we're sponsored by yeti and we look at you know we have a buzzer beer at the end that i completely missed my shot on because i got beat by the clock very fast last week <laughs> but it's, it's a fun time we bring it on a host of different belly up writers and basketball writers to talk hoops every wednesday night at nine o'clock at midweek mid-range you can find us on twitter instagram and youtube and you'll be hearing us on a couple of other shows as well we got something lined up for tomorrow that could be pretty interesting um so just make sure that you guys are paying attention to what we're doing we're doing a lot of cool stuff speaking of paying attention pay attention to us <laughs> on social media too mr ainsworth you want to go ahead and give folks our socials yeah you can find me personally on, on social media at painsworth 512 that's at p-a-i-n-s-w-o-r-t-h 512 
all one word on Twitter and Instagram. I'll also use the show's Twitter, although Mr. Cummings used it a lot more than me recently. That's at FNSports2. That's F-I-N-S-P-R-T-S, the number two, all one word. I'll use dash B-A. Uh, Shaka will use dash CC so you know which one of us we're talking to. We also have an Instagram, Shaka. Yes, we do. Find us on Instagram at F underscore N underscore sports. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Shaka Cummings at C-H-A-K-A-C-U-M-M-I-N-G-S. You'll see some awesome graphics that are coming out. This is what happens when you give teachers some time off. Parker did some cool <laughs> stuff this weekend. Uh, friends, thank you guys for listening. Please go out, like, subscribe, share, do all the wonderful things to help out the podcast. And please remember, when it comes to sports, don't fuck with us. Later, guys. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Todd is in love. Sarah, I've never felt this way before. But he's about to find out that sometimes when you chase after love... I'm moving to Paris. You've got to step on the gas. Because this isn't your classic holiday rom-com. It's a Nissan event ad. Wait, what? Featuring a powerful performance by Nissan Rogue. Oh, come on, come on. Todd? I'm coming with you. Get 2.59% APR financing for 36 months on Rogue. Get your heart racing at Nissan's Thrill of the Drive event. Availability is limited. Shop at your local Nissan store or at NissanUSA.com. Don't let true love or these offers slip away. For well-qualified buyers, 2.59% APR financing for 36 months on new 2023 Nissan Rogue and dealer stock. Example zero down payment, 36 months financing at $28.90 per month per thousand financed. Actual down payment may vary subject to residency restrictions and NMAC credit approval. Not all buyers qualify. Dealer contribution may affect price set by dealer. Dealer sets actual price. Contact dealer for details. Ends one 23